News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It really wasn't that long ago, maybe just a few years ago, that it seemed like every super expensive commercial during the Super Bowl was a cryptocurrency ad of some kind. Remember that? It was a big deal. And a lot of money was being made by certain people. And then we started to get the downfall, right? Story after story of some crypto person being busted or hunted by law enforcement authorities. Well, our next guest has been writing extensively about this. Andy Greenberg is with a senior writer on hacking cybersecurity and surveillance for Wired and author of Tracers in the Dark, the global hunt for the crime lords of cryptocurrency. Andy, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Good to be here. Andy, do you think the tide has turned now on the idea of these people pushing cryptocurrency being the next big thing? Well, you know, there's always I've actually written about cryptocurrency, believe it or not, since 2011, when Bitcoin was worth one dollar. Now, please don't ask me if I bought any at the time. I don't want to. Let's not get into that. uh, Yeah. But, but you know, but Bitcoin has gone up and down. It has crashed and it has risen to like dizzying heights again. And, you know, I'm kind of agnostic on whether it's a good investment, but I have seen, of course, like terrible scams occur over the years. What I've written about and what I've always been focused on is really not even about like that kind of financial scumminess of the crypto world, but really the straight up crime that cryptocurrency is used for. Uh, because you know, not, you know, it, it is this, this thing you can gamble on, but it also was once perceived, I think people may um, still sometimes think this even, that perceived as a kind of anonymous or untraceable cash for the internet that you could basically like put these unmarked bills in a briefcase and send them across the internet to anyone in the world without revealing your identity. And that seemed like, you know, it, it actually did, in fact, um, result in this whole new world of underground dark web crime. And that's really what I've always covered as a reporter. Okay, and where do you think, at what point did the tide start to turn? Was there one particular case, one story where you think, okay, this might be the beginning of something here? Well, it was really back in 2013 that, you know, that was the kind of peak of this idea of Bitcoin as this untraceable cash for the internet. And it was being used by dark web markets, like dark web sites like the Silk Road, which was this this underground market that traded in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of illegal drugs, I mean, heroin, cocaine, meth, all for Bitcoin. And law enforcement seemed unable to follow the money or to do anything to take down this site. Uh, It seemed like Bitcoin was working as this kind of, you know, perfect crime cash for the internet. And then this researcher came along named Sarah Mickeljohn, this 27-year-old graduate student at University of California, San Diego, and she started to look at closer at the blockchain, which, you know, it, this, this sounds a bit ridiculous in retrospect, but the blockchain is actually a list of every Bitcoin transaction that has ever taken place. So how could you possibly think that it was anonymous? The, the only reason people did was because these transactions are listed between not names or identifiers or any kind of personal information, but between these long strings of garbled kind of, you know, encoded addresses. And Sarah was the first to show that despite that, you could still start to find patterns in this massive, you know, really like a list, a ledger of every transaction that is recorded in the blockchain, copied out to thousands of computers around the world, cannot be changed or erased. She started to find ways to to identify people, to connect them to those Bitcoin addresses, to cluster the addresses, to show that like sometimes dozens or hundreds or thousands belong to a single person or to a, you know, even to a dark web market like the Silk Road. 
and to follow the money and show law enforcement that it was possible to start busting people in this crypto economy. Okay, and then what happened? Well, I mean, Sarah Mickeljohn just published a paper about this in, in late 2013. And I think it was, you know, I, even then, I think that the, the kind of dark web criminals didn't take this seriously, didn't fully understand the degree to which they were at that point doing drug deals in full public view. Um, you know, I even, as a reporter, did some test transactions where I bought, I, it's okay to say this, it's in 2024, I bought some small amounts of marijuana from dark web markets just to see how it worked to prove it could be done. And Sarah traced my drug deals and showed that she could see them right there on the blockchain, that I had done illegal you know, deals in public view that anybody could see. And sure enough, like the next, over the next years, there was this massive crackdown, which is really the subject of my book. I mean, it's a, it's a detective story about these crypto tracing detectives who used Sarah's techniques. In fact, um, some of them were built into this, this tool um, called Chainalysis, a company that is now worth $9 billion uh, that sold crypto tracing services to law enforcement. And sure enough, you know, starting in 2014, well, first of all, the Silk Road was taken down. Then uh, the, this, this heist of half, uh, or rather 650,000 Bitcoins worth half a billion dollars at the time, far more now, that was solved with cryptocurrency tracing and traced to these Russian cyber criminals. Then the biggest dark web market in history, 10 times the size of the Silk Road, was taken down through cryptocurrency tracing. Uh, this guy was identified running the market in Bangkok, and he was arrested in this incredibly elaborate bust that I detail in the book. And then finally, the kind of climax of the story, I would argue, although it's continuing in many ways, is that this dark web child sexual abuse materials market, what we used to call child porn market, was busted through cryptocurrency tracing. And not only was the administrator arrested in Korea, but hundreds of pedophiles around the world were traced through these, these techniques and arrested 337 men in dozens of countries around the world and 23 children were rescued as a result of this operation. And it was really remarkable about all this is the, the way you just described it is that everybody thought that this was untraceable, right? The people who were buying it and trading in this world, the law enforcement people, until somebody said, oh, actually, no, it's not. And then everything changed. Absolutely. I mean, it was absolutely it was a it was a sea change in people's idea of how, you know, uh, anonymous finance can happen on the on the dark web. Basically, you know, people were thinking they were operating in the dark and then suddenly the lights were turned on. But the amazing thing about the blockchain is that even once, you know, the I, I, I guess like, the you know, I guess you could say the cockroaches scatter when the lights turn on. All the evidence is still there it re recorded forever in the blockchain. And cryptocurrency tracers, you know, law enforcement agencies are still going back to the blockchain to, to dig out right. this evidence and, and prosecute people even today. Oh, amazing. Andy, thank you so much for telling us about it this morning. Oh, well, thanks so much. I appreciate you talking about it. It was fascinating. That's Andy Greenberg. Andy's a senior writer on hacking cybersecurity and surveillance for Wired magazine. But the book is called Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. And what a fascinating story it tells. This is Mornings with Simi. Psychedelics. The word conjures up images of peace and love and the hippies from the 60s and 70s, but a growing amount of research is showing that these kind of drugs could have real therapeutic uses in mental health treatment. But psychedelics is a pretty broad term, so what exactly is under this umbrella? I spoke with Radom Pentarenkar, 
director of the Canadian Centre for Psychedelic Sciences, to get a better understanding of what exactly we're talking about. There is no one consistent definition of what's included under this umbrella term. When I say psychedelics, I mean classical psychedelics, and that includes only four substances. That's magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, and mescaline. Uh, However, other substances like MDMA and ketamine uh, in recent years have been also grouped under this umbrella as they also sometimes cause visual effects. And MDMA also operates on the serotonin uh, pathway, same as classical psychedelics. Interest in research in psychedelics goes all the way back centuries and really started to get some traction in the 50s. So why did it take so long to get here and look at psychedelics for their therapeutic benefits. For more insight, I spoke with Erica Dick, Professor of History of Health and Social Justice in the Department of History at the University of Saskatchewan. Yeah, you know, I think the sort of first generation of psychedelic science or really clinical applications of psychedelics in the 1950s in particular really sort of gathered momentum. But by the 1970s, that research had really trickled to a halt. There was a pretty strong war on drugs that was uh, introduced by Richard Nixon. And this idea that, you know, some drugs should be put into a category of dangerous, of not medically valuable or beneficial. There was a UN convention in 1971 that really sort of put a firm stamp on psychedelics in this category of high risk for abuse potential and low uh, chances of medicinal benefits. And despite the research and the findings at the time, I think that those categories really stuck. And that's certainly where psychedelics still exist today, although research is starting to chip away at some of those regulatory classifications. So I think there's been a real dark period or a sort of dormant period in terms of the legal research that has been taking place. Now it appears we're coming out of this dormant period and there's a renewed interest in studying psychedelics for therapeutic uses. So where does the research stand today? Here's Rodham Pintarinkar again. The findings seem very promising. Um, There is mounting evidence that psychedelics uh, are effective for a variety of mental health conditions, including depression, anxiety, OCD, uh, potentially eating disorders, chronic pain, the list goes on. And really, uh, the effect sizes we're seeing are quite large, um, a lot bigger than what we expect, say, from other frontline treatments like uh, antidepressants. But what makes psychedelic therapy different from traditional antidepressant therapy? With insight, here's Rob Tenge, clinical assistant professor in the University of Calgary Department of Psychiatry and Surgery. The important thing is, is that the, the data that we're seeing for psychedelics is always in combination with therapy. So it's a very unique process where in most drug development, you're talking about developing a molecule. Uh, What we're seeing here is the development of treatment protocols along with the molecule. Uh, That's actually really, really quite unique and not something that we see with the other uh, medications. Uh, The other part is that unlike most medications that you take for um, mental illness, end up taking a medication for long periods of time. The uh, research that we see right now are for large doses of MDMA or psilocybin over just two or three treatment protocols. And then that's it. So a very different process where you're aggressively treating the underlying cause of the depression or the PTSD and then moving forward without a medication. Are there any ethical concerns for integrating this kind of therapy into our healthcare system? And how do we ensure equitable access to this kind of therapy? That's a million dollar question. It will require 
a variety of different voices at the table. And I, I think we need that because we need to respect the sort of diverse ways that people are taking psychedelics in the first place. You know, whether it's only through a psychiatrist that one can get psychedelics, I think people will still seek out their own supplies if their wait lists are too long. So we, I think we need to bring a variety of heads to the table um, as we think about what kind of safe regulation could be in place so that we can tackle some of the questions about stigma and reputation alongside those ethical questions about access, demand, and safety. Uh, we really want to make sure, I think, that we promote a kind of safe context for consuming psychedelics. And that's going to have to combat some of the stigma, but also not overwhelm things in the other direction to suggest that these are entirely safe and anyone can take them. So what about the risks? As with any new medication coming onto the market, it would seem foolish to assume there would be no risks or side effects attached to it. Here's Rodden Pintarinka again. Classical psychedelics are almost impossible to uh, overdose on. It's almost impossible that they would cause physical harm, whereas MDMA and ketamine could very well be dangerous if you take too much of these substances. When you look at the risk-benefit ratio and the harms that can come from them, the harms are much lower than many other medications that we prescribe today. There is always the risk of unlicensed therapists and people who, you know, took a course and now say, oh, I'm a, I'm a psychedelic therapist because I was, you know, kind of dabbling in this before. Uh, that's a big risk. And making sure that the provinces put together appropriate regulations to protect patients from these kind of issues. Psychedelics have, have for a long time carried that heavy stigma, this idea that they're going to you know, be addictive or toxic or that they're going to cause some kind of dangerous and violent behaviors. And I think um, research is now showing that not only were those claims overblown in the past, a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these substances are being used safely as medications and they're having better results than some of the other contemporary competitors on the market today. And it's starting to change that stigma, certainly in the last 10 years. I think the stories about psychedelics have begun to chip away at that reputation. Where will psychedelic therapy go in the next five or 10 years? It's, it's hard to say, but all the experts I spoke to are very optimistic about the potential of this kind of treatment for mental health issues. For the 2024 Health Series, I'm Marie Schaefer. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I don't know if I would call this one of our favorite topics that we talk about with Von Palmer for the Vancouver Sun, but it certainly comes up off. We must like talking about it, Von. Oh, come on. It's a favorite. Is it? <laughs> There's nothing like it out there at the moment. <laughs> Surrey policing. Here we are again. Although this was a little bit different, I would say, this time, because what happened with Surrey policing was a very kind of a detailed technical briefing, which we don't get enough of in terms of actual details on this story. Yeah, we've been complaining for a long time that there's no sort of take it to the bank independent numbers on this. And, I, and this is as close as we've gotten. The administrator that the provincial government sent in to try to sort things out, Mike Sayre, gave us the budget, the budget that he presented to Surrey Council back on November the 30th and on which he has received no response. So he gave us, it's pretty detailed, a lot of stuff in there. We've never seen numbers as good as that from the mayor in Surrey. What we tend to get is political boilerplate from her. So I would say this is pretty credible. Uh, yes. And the other thing is Mike Sarah said, look, he's still willing to work with Surrey Council. He's still willing to tweak the numbers if they point out things that need to be addressed between now and March the 1st. But here we go. We've got the numbers. And I, as I said, I think this is more credible than anything we've seen from the mayor and council on this issue. 
Okay, let's dive into these numbers then. What did you discover? Well, there's two big ones, and I think these are the, the main challenge. So Sarah listed off the money available for policing services this year, and it's $337 million. That's for both police forces and all the other costs associated with it. Mostly money approved by Surrey, but there's some money left over unused from a previous year transition fund. And there's $30 million from the province. The member of the province put up, offered $150 million to fund transition. So you put all that together, $337 million. And he says that Surrey Policing Services this year is requesting $142 million. So that will allow them to staff up to about 400 officers on the street and plus some other officers as well. Uh, That'll take the standalone Surrey Police Service about two-thirds of the way to the final transition where they are the police force out there. So uh, there's the numbers. Uh, If you you take them, and as I said, I haven't seen a substantive challenge to them, that means there's $195 million left over, not used by Surrey Policing Services to pay for the RCMP and any other costs out there. So you put all that together, there's plenty of money to pay for what's needed this year, and there's no need for any kind of tax increase this year to pay for the Surrey Policing Service. So that's the, the big numbers, bottom right. line. Uh, Sarah did not, yeah, I'd have to say, I I just went through the transcript this morning again. I listened to him yesterday and I went through the transcript today. Also listened to the off the record background briefing. And I would say uh, he's a pro. Uh, He stayed away from the politics as much as he could in this. Although I guess everything you can say about Surrey Policing Services, including the sentence I just uttered, is fundamentally political. But Um, What I would say is we now can see, because this is the other important thing that happened, we can now see the end game on the financial front. So there's a couple of dates to circle. First one is March the 1st. Up until then, Sarah is willing to change the budget submission if Surrey meets with him and says, here's some things you need to address. The next date that's important is the 15th of May. By that date... Surrey Council needs to approve the budget. If they don't approve it, then it's quite clear what happens in provincial law. Sarah submits the budget to the provincial director of policing services, Lewis, and he can impose the final budget on Surrey. So this thing isn't going to go on forever. The budget dispute financial dispute is going to be resolved. Surrey has two choices. Meet with Sarah, try to work something out, or accept that if they just continue to ignore it and continue to fight it, then the provincial director of policing services is going to impose a budget on Surrey, and that will be the law. Well, it sounds very much like from the reaction of the mayor, they're just going to ignore it. Yeah, they're going to ignore it. They're fighting in court. Okay, so I don't think their chances are uh, very good of stopping this in court. But, you know, you never know what a judge is going to do. And I'm no lawyer, so maybe, uh, unlikely. Uh, But in the meantime, this is how things are going to proceed. I don't see that other than the injunction, the mayor and council have any way to stop this. Uh, 
Municipalities are, a creature, are creatures of the provincial government. They ultimately, the province has the law on its side. So I think in terms of financial, that's where we're headed. Either Surrey accepts these numbers, tries to adjust them a bit within the realm of possibility, or they're going to be imposed on Surrey. Now, that doesn't end the political dispute here. You know, behind all this is a blame game. And my, I think all the indications are that Surrey is fighting this, not because they expect to win the financial legal argument, but because at the end of the day, they want to say that any tax increases in Surrey that result either this year or in the long run, they want to say they're Mike Farnworth's tax increases. I mean, Surrey's already saying that on billboards out there. So there's not, I'm not guessing yeah. at their strategy. Exactly. Well, that's where we're headed. Yeah, that is exactly. I, I think we might be talking about this again. So, yeah, just just a wild guess. You, know? you think? I don't know. I I yesterday listening to the Crawfords, I was like, oh, okay, well, no, this is these are the numbers. Now this is it. And now twenty four hours later, I'm not so sure this is it. So that's well, the way the story you know, goes. Sarah had to admit because he got asked, right? This is the budget for Surrey Policing Services, and he's sounds like he's pretty solid ground on that. He put it all together. And he gets asked, okay, well, what's it going to cost to maintain the RCMP in Surrey this year? He said he doesn't know. You know, he shared his numbers with the RCMP, but hasn't heard back. He's not really in charge of that because ultimately the RCMP right. is a federal police force in a world of their own. One of the reasons some people in Surrey want to get away from the RCMP is because they have doubts about that. But yeah, there's still a gap here which is we don't know what the RCMP needs this year in Surrey. And the mayor and council uh, would point out as well that there are some long-term capital and transition costs that may not be covered by this, although that's in dispute. Right. They pointed out yesterday that some of the things that people have been saying, well, what's it going to cost for IT? Well, that's in the budget, actually. There's $30 million. Oh, there now, you go. What about, you know, providing the new Surrey police force with, you know, armor and uniforms and ammunition. Well, that's all in the budget too. So a lot of the stuff we've been hearing questions about are addressed in this budget, but there's one biggie and that is what's it going to cost to staff up the RCMP for the rest of the year? We don't know. Uh, well, I guess the ball's in their court then. All right, we're back talk talking with uh, Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun here. And I guess the premier weighed in on a couple of issues yesterday too. Yeah, Premier had a news conference yesterday to announce the provincial government response to the devastating report summary from the chief coroner on the fact that we broke the record uh, for a number of overdose deaths last year and the chief coroner's complaints that the provincial government has not been providing enough support. Uh, for people with mental health and addiction issues, uh, which is lies behind, along with toxic drugs, lies behind the death toll there. So the Premier announced 180 new treatment beds. It's a, it's just a news release, folks. It isn't 180 new beds until they're actually there. And in addition, I would say, Simi, that uh, I've seen enough of these announcements. There is evidence that the provincial government is doing the old game of double counting. Uh, the 
BC United opposition got its hands on some information under access to information, which suggests that in their first, gee, we're in the eighth year of NDP government, they only added about 250 treatment beds. So uh, yes, this is needed. And yes, the government is doing something, but there's some open questions as to what it will actually accomplish. And there's a couple of interesting things that the chief coroner said about all this. And the first thing she said is that we don't have a lot of data on what we've actually done and whether it's effective. I mean, there's a huge lack of data around here, Simeon. It matters because when the grand experiment with decriminalization was announced a year ago, one of the things the federal government, which approved it all, said, we're going to be meticulous about checking on how this is working and we're going to have lots of data and we're going to be able to say this worked and this didn't work it's spotty. And the chief coroner said it again. There's a good interview with her in the Globe and Mail today with Andrea Wu. She says, we don't know. You know, we've got all these beds, but we don't know how effective this is. And the other problem is, she says, even if we had all the beds we need, and Simi, you and I know that when people say they want treatment, they can't get them. There's a waiting list. That's right. Yeah. Even if we had all that. And she said, you know, some people aren't ready for treatment. And that's the reason she, the chief coroner, is saying we need greater access to safe supply drugs without prescriptions. So you basically just need to make it available so that people can get the safe supply so they don't fall back on the poisoned illicit supply. That, she's been saying that since last fall. As you noted, the premier responded on that yesterday as well. And he said, no way. He said the provincial government and the chief coroner disagree on this one. The province does not. These are, the premier says these are dangerous, hard drugs, and the province is not going to allow them to be dispensed without the oversight of a medical professional. So there has to be prescriptions, and that's the end of it. And on that one, my guess is premier probably has some public support, although there are consequences because there's an awful lot of people out there accessing the unsafe supply uh, on the black yeah. criminal market because there aren't enough, there isn't enough access to the safe supply at the moment. Okay, so there was that that he talked about. I also want to get to, because we have Vancouver Mayor Ken Simon coming on, like he, he talked about the whole park board situation too. Yeah, I premier got asked about that. Uh, the question is, you know, the provincial government uh, needs... Uh, uh, sorry, the city of Vancouver needs provincial government approval, an amendment to the Vancouver Charter that would then allow the city to do what the mayor wants, which is to get rid of the park board, the elected one. Uh, Premier got asked about that, and he said, well, yes, he's aware of the request, and he knows it's a priority for, quote, some people in Vancouver, no names. But he said it is, has to be recognized this is not a major priority for the provincial government. So he kind of suspected this all along. The legislature is sitting for less time this spring than usual. It's an election year. There is no fall session. And because it's an election year, as you might imagine, the, the New Democrats have their own agenda. And I took that as a pretty strong hint from the premier that Ken Sims' agenda is not going to be part of the provincial government agenda this spring. Mm-hmm. That's what I heard there, too. But we'll hear what the mayor has to say. Thank you for that, Vaughn. Bye bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. 
the twists and turns of that U.S. presidential election. And oh, by the way, they're still trying to solve immigration, too, and all the other problems that they have at the same time, which makes it so interesting every week when we check in with Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Let's talk about the primary recap this week. Boy, this was so interesting that they're trying to push that the Republican side of things is over, but Nikki Haley is saying not so much. She is not going anywhere. And in fact, uh, in the day after she lost the primary and, you know, add a couple of hours on top of that, she raised more than a million dollars from her fundraising efforts, including T-shirts that say that she's not going anywhere, essentially getting up on stage to say Donald Trump threw a Donald Trump style hissy fit that he didn't win as big as he wanted to win. So she's not going to go anywhere. What does it mean? Well, I mean, look, the the path and the math are not really in her favor going forward, but staying in the race is, um, you know, is a choice and it could matter. Primaries, sure, they're going to go to Donald Trump. But in a general election, if she can switch people's mindsets over to, you know what, maybe Trump is not the best person for this because she's going after the, you know, the college educated and the suburban women and the undecideds, she really could make a difference in what happens in November because they may go over to Joe Biden if he's the candidate. Well, yeah, let's talk about that part of it. I found that so interesting because there were quite a few people, you know, Nikki Haley voters this week who said they're they're not voting for Donald Trump if he is the candidate, and especially because of the way he attacked her. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the the speech that Donald Trump gave, uh, you know, from the experts that we talked to, from listening to to Haley supporters, this was not a presidential speech, but it was something to be expected from Donald Trump. And some of the Haley supporters that I talked to in New Hampshire earlier this week made a point of saying if it's not her on the ballot in November, they will switch and vote for Joe Biden. And that, I mean, says one of two things. Number one, it says maybe the age factor of Joe Biden isn't quite so much a liability, but it also says, hey, Maybe uh, Joe Biden, despite his age, is better than Donald Trump. So, I mean, this could spell problems for the Republican Party down the line. Okay, so she doesn't seem like she is bending yet, even though she was even getting pressure I saw from the Republican National Committee. I mean, she's been getting pressure from the entire Republican Party in general to say bow down uh, and and essentially kiss the ring of Donald Trump. Let us give him this throne that belongs to him uh, already. She's not going. Even the RNC is now coming out to say, look, why don't we just give him the win anyways, even though 48 other states have to hold their their primaries and caucuses. So, I mean, she's not going anywhere. Trump is is seething over the fact that there is still competition in the race. And I think she's going to try to use that to her advantage. So, too, will Joe Biden. It's so this has now made the race to me so much more interesting because somebody is actually pushing back, uh, which none of the candidates were doing before, like actively pushing back against Donald Trump. So that makes it so interesting to me. But also Donald Trump has other bigger issues, too, in New York City. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the closing arguments begin uh, in the trial uh, of E. Jean Carroll. It's a damages trial uh, linked to the accusations uh, that, that she was raped uh, in a department store uh, back in the 1980s. Yesterday, Donald Trump actually got up in his own defense, uh, and he was on the stand for just over 180 seconds. Uh, the jury was you know, instructed to disregard a couple of things that he said beyond one-word answers uh, of yes and no. And ultimately, um, you know, th- this it's going to cost Donald Trump some money, possibly. But as we have seen with Donald Trump, he turns these court cases into, um, you know, campaign 
you know, conversations. So whatever happens to Trump, he's going to rail against it and he's going to get support from within his base, even though the accusations um, are, are, are heinous. Right. Okay. Now we have to talk about the other side here, the Democratic side of things, where they're, they seem to be kind of sharpening their message for this presidential campaign. And it sounds like they're definitely going to be putting abortion at the forefront. Absolutely. Uh, we, we, Joe Biden has not really kicked off his campaign yet. He's been urged to do that by the former president, uh, Barack Obama. Uh, but he and, and Vice President Harris were in Virginia earlier this week, uh, and they made uh, abortion a key pillar, and it is likely going to become a key pillar as we get closer to November. This did well for them in 2020. It did well for them after Roe v. Wade was overturned, uh, when they were able to kind of stop that red wave from forming in 2022. They are now going to use, um, you know, uh, uh, stats that are coming out about uh, about uh, uh, rape and, and the pregnancies that are coming from that that can't be terminated because uh, there's no abortion in some states to say the person who took away your rights is the person who is trying to get back into power. So this is going to be what they try to coalesce so much of the Democratic base back onto their side for to say threats to your rights and threats to democracy follow Donald Trump. Okay, that's going to be an interesting one. Uh, and there's a study that came out about the impacts of this, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's 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 it is it's difficult to kind of hear it uh, in that this study, you know, it's it's estimates, it's not exact numbers here, but they suggest that sixty four thousand. Pregnancies by rape were recorded in states that have total bans on abortion in the six or seven months after Roe v. Wade was uh, was overturned. The vast majority, twenty six thousand of those, in the state of Texas alone. That is a uh, that is a health crisis. That is a mental health crisis. That is a potential future financial crisis for these women. And it comes especially after Texas Governor right. Greg Abbott said that he was going to work to eliminate rape in his state. These stats suggest that it has only uh, become worse. And these are numbers that. Democrats, the president and the vice president are going to run on when they talk about the detriments and the detrimental effect of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Well, let's talk about some law and order issues then here, too, because, you know, Reggie, I I followed the story over the last 10 years about how the death penalty has become increasingly difficult for states to carry out uh, just because of the the, the chemicals involved, the drugs involved. A lot of companies said they, they didn't want to be associated with this. And so then Alabama was trying something new, and it sounds like it just went horribly wrong. Well, I mean, in the eyes of of the state of Alabama, in the eyes of Governor Kay Ivey, in the eyes of the of the U.S. Supreme Court that overturned the attempts to appeal, this went right. This is exactly what they were attempting to do, which was put to death uh, a man that had been convicted uh, in a murder for hire plot. The problem is that there are critics that say the the way that he was put to death using nitrogen uh, that took upwards uh, of at least half an hour, uh, and you know he was holding his breath and he was writhing uh, on on the on the stretcher. Um, you know, it suggests that this person may have been used as an experiment to try and figure out if nitrogen is going to be the way to do this. There are critics saying, look, let's abolish the death penalty altogether. But these states say, look, no, it's in our constitution. We're going to do it. This is now our path forward. Veterinarians have come out to say we don't use nitrogen because it, it is an uncomfortable death. But but these states are now using it on humans. Um, and the question is, you know, will it happen again? Uh, or, or or will the people who are trying to fight back against this um, will they become the winners? Nonetheless, this was this was this was this was this was horrifying. It was gruesome. Oof. It's a reality in these states, um, and it's a conversation. Oh boy, is it ever, uh, Reggie? Thank you for all that. Thank you. Appreciate that, Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Usually when we talk about youth that have issues here in BC, it's to say that there isn't enough help or support. Well, it turns out in one area, that might not be the case. It's part of the latest very interesting report from BC's representative for children and youth that highlights one part of the youth justice system that might actually have a surplus of resources and says those could be used elsewhere. Kind of wonder, how is that even possible in this day and age? So let's find out about it. Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth is BC's representative for children and youth and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. So what did you take a look at in this report? It was really interesting. Just as you said in your opening, there are so many areas and we report on them where there's a a lack of services, there's a lack of opportunity to support young people. But in the youth justice area, there's been a, there's a good news, bad news story. The good news story is that over the last couple of decades, the number of young people needing youth justice services by virtue of their involvement and conflict with the law has declined precipitously. So, for example, in uh, in 2000, there were 4,150 children that were um, needing community justice services. Now there are 800. In 97, uh, there were 386 kids every day in custody centers. Now there are an average of 15. So that's a significant drop. But since 2014, there hasn't been any change in the way in which youth justice services have been delivered. We still maintain two custody centers that are very well staffed for a significant number of children. But in the case of Prince George, some days there are no kids there. So we've been taking a look closely at all aspects of youth justice system and found very clearly that there is an overabundance of resources, and those resources, we believe, could be deployed elsewhere where they're more needed. Dr. Charlesworth, this seems crazy to me. The idea that there's this big youth detention facility in Prince George, that some days there's no kids in there, and yet at the same time we know there's you know, parts of Ministry of Children and Family Development where kids aren't even getting a visit from a social worker. Exactly. That's exactly the point. So why hasn't this been recognized before? Why don't we say, okay, this is overused. We don't need this. Can we redeploy those resources elsewhere? It's a great question. I think it's one of those things. Youth justice is not a big part of the Ministry of Children and Family Development. It's kind of a small piece of service delivery in a very large ministry. So perhaps it's just been there are other things that have been pressing. COVID has certainly impacted things. But uh, nonetheless, we decided we needed to point to, we needed to illuminate this and encourage the ministry to take a deep look. And uh, we've provided all of the evidence that we found. There's nothing that they have refuted at all in any of the evidence that we've put forward. Um, And interestingly, when we shared a draft uh, of this report, it was shortly thereafter that they decided to close the Prince George Youth Custody Center. And just recently, they've announced that they're providing a grant to Clayley Tomei, uh, nation up in the north to do consultations about how to better serve their children. So there's good news. I think right. there is movement now. Right. But I, I get a little concerned that, oh, they're going to close it. But what are they like? Are they going to lose those resources? Like we know that there's not enough treatment beds for uh, you know, yes. youth who have addiction issues. How do you get those back after you've closed it and lost those resources? Well, that's a very important point. What we have said is there is we are very, very adamant that those resources do not get 
you know, just absorbed in general revenue, that these are redeployed to address those issues that are not being addressed in other parts of the system. So you mentioned mental health, substance use, absolutely, and particularly in the North and particularly in custody. What you see for many of the young people is that they've got trauma, they've got mental health uh, challenges, substance use challenges that their families have. So back up the bus before they're involved in in criminal activity and see what could be done to support them. So I'm encouraged. We've had uh, many conversations with uh, folks, service providers in this area and uh, with uh, First Nations and Indigenous organizations, and they're excited about the possibility of redeployment of significant millions of dollars into better services, especially for kids in the North and especially for Indigenous children. Yeah, okay. So if you could single out one area, Dr. Charlesworth, that you say this, this is what we need the money for for children, what would you say? What? Can I have two? Sure. Go ahead. Take two. One is, <laughs> yeah. one is absolutely mental health services. And uh, through the lifespan and a, a much better array of services. And then the other related to that, because they're often interconnected, is substance use, because young people um, uh, use substances to numb their emotional pain. But then the other area that is, it seems like it's quite different, but they're often intersected, is uh, special needs. So kids with FASD particularly get nothing, and they are vastly overrepresented in the in the prison population and adults. So we see it in youth as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that today. Thank you very much, Simi. Have a good day. You too. That's Dr. Jennifer Charlesworth, BC's representative for children and youth, talking about her latest report. Was that not interesting? The fact that the youth justice system is not as used as it used to be, which is a good thing, but they still had all these resources that were allocated to it that are not getting used. So a surplus in one area, not so much in others. They definitely need to be reallocated for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of debate about policing and how much it costs these days, particularly in Surrey, right? Uh, they're big chunks of a municipal budget. I mean, as much as a quarter of the whole thing is taken up by policing. And we know that, you know, many police forces are always saying that their budget needs to go up and the public really is reluctant to say no, because after all, we have the impression that funding the police and giving the police what they need to do their job will help make us safer. But does it? Well, this is something that our next guest has actually studied. Melanie Seabrook is the lead researcher of the police funding study at the St. Michael's Hospital Upstream Lab and joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Is there a correlation between how much money police get in their budget and how safe a community is? So we looked at 20 municipalities across Canada, and when we compared the two and calculated correlations, we didn't see consistent correlations between uh, police spending and crime rates. Um, so these, like, to be accurate, these these uh, correlations did vary a lot across the municipalities, and there were a couple uh, that were significant correlations between spending and crime rates. Um, but the, the the variation was uh, was uh, quite extensive across across Canada. Okay, when you say there were a couple, were, like, was that big cities? Was that small towns? What was that? Um, yeah, so the uh, the ones that were significant were, I believe, Winnipeg and then Peel Region, 
Quebec City and Gatineau. Um, and those were the significant negative correlations, that, which means that uh, higher spending on police were, were associated with uh, lower crime rates. There were also a few uh, significant correlations that were positive correlations, meaning that um, higher spending was associated with higher crime rates. Um, and, you know, that was in um, uh, Saskatoon and in Edmonton. Right. And so, but, you know, these were a, a few of the correlations overall, uh, the, the majority of them were not statistically significant uh, correlations. So it seems like it's all over the map then, trend. Melanie. It does seem yeah, like it's exactly. all over the map. <laughs> we can't really see a, a constant pattern um, between between the two across Canada. Right. So why did you want to look into this? Did you, did you want to look into it? Because mm-hmm. the issue that people do think that, well, if the police need more money, if they say they need more money, then we should give it to them because we want to be safe. Yeah, I think that was that was part of the reason, right? So our lab um, is a, a, a research lab that looks into the different factors that promote people's health and well-being. Um, and so we wanted to look into um, how spending on police services um, promotes um, you know, community safety and, and well-being, um, and whether that was uh, that was what kind of the evidence is saying. And there's very little research on this in Canada right now, which is why we wanted to do this kind of um, broad study to, right. to to get a better understanding. Were mm-hmm. you able to kind of take a look at the per capita spending uh, in, yeah. in in these cities? And some of them are some of them are a lot of per capita, but like I know Vancouver is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was kind of a surprising result or, um, you know, quite a significant uh, difference in spending per capita across Canada. Um, So Vancouver, so using 2019 as a comparison year, Vancouver spent almost $500 uh, per capita or per person, um, whereas Quebec City spent less than half of that at around uh, just over $200 per person. Um, So it kind of raises this question of why such a large differences in spending on police services uh, across Canada. Yeah, that is. Were you able, I guess maybe that's your next thing that you're going to look at, but were you able to determine why there is such a discrepancy? Um, So, you know, we haven't been able to make any conclusions on it, but we are, you know, one hypothesis is just looking at, again, the crime rates and Quebec City does have um, kind of half of the uh, level of crime that Vancouver does according to the uh, crime severity index. And so that kind of could suggest that, you know, when policymakers are are deciding on budgets, maybe they're basing it on uh, crime rates, right? And so higher crime rates would lead them to maybe increase spending on policing. That is an interesting one. Uh, Melanie, thank you so much for talking to us about it this morning. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That's Melanie Seabrook, who's a lead researcher on this police funding study at St. Michael's Hospital Upstream Lab. Uh, They took a look at police budgets and found out that just the more money you spend on police does not necessarily mean that a community is safer when you break it down statistically. Interesting stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. City of Vancouver is moving forward with plans to get rid of the park board. But ever since this was announced a few months ago, there have been questions about, well, how is this process going to work? What's going to happen? So now we've heard that the mayor and ABC majority on council have introduced this idea of a working group to kind of move things forward. But we wanted to get more details on it. So joining us now is the mayor of Vancouver, Ken Sim, to talk more about that. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. So first of all, what is this working group tasked with doing? 
Well, they're helping us with um, transitioning from the elected park board uh, into uh, rolling uh, the, you know, the function into, um, you know, uh, the city of Vancouver. Okay, so how are they going to do that? Well, there's two things. Um, so we, um, you know, uh, from an operational perspective, uh, the city of Vancouver, um, you know, we already uh, have a lot of great working relationships. The, for example, the, the park board employees are already park board um, or city of Vancouver employees already. So there's a lot of things that um, are going to happen seamlessly anyways. When it comes to the transition uh, working group, they're going to make sure that we have a, a lens from the community to make sure that uh, we, uh, you know, this works for the community in general. For example, we have uh, Jordan Najar, who's a soccer coach and a leader in the South Asian community. We have uh, Jennifer Wood from Diving BC. We have Gregor Young, who's an executive director at Van Nuys Football, um, as an example. So, you know, having people that use the parks on a regular basis who understand what the challenges are, um, having their input. So not only will the transition work better, but also, um, you know, we we can actually have... uh, you know, a lot of engagement and um, um, ideas as to fix the the park system even more. Right. So what is your goal for this? Like, what do you think removing the park board will do? Well, like I mentioned um, uh, during um, the press conference, uh, when you have two groups accountable for something, you have no one accountable. And so what we have is we have an excess layer of government bureaucracy that's making uh, running our parks uh, incredibly challenging. And so when you get rid of, uh, or sorry, when you, you know, remove that layer of, um, you know, um, that excess layer, it it just makes uh, the operations more seamless and we can be more reactive. And so when you look at some of the challenges we have in our parks right now, because of this, uh, uh, you know, this uh, duplication of governance, it now takes 15 years to get a community center built in Vancouver. Uh, We have, you know, when when we're maintaining our seawall, we actually have two groups. We have the city of Vancouver that manages part of it with our engineering uh, team. And then on the park board um, side, uh, they actually outsource um, the the maintenance of the seawall to an outside group that actually costs way more than what we can do it in-house for, um, but also you don't have that continuity. you know, it's like I probably have 40 examples of uh, all right. the, you know, all, all the challenges we have because we have two, uh, um, you know, uh, groups of governance. Right. So do you, but do you think that you have like the explicit mandate for this? Because this wasn't something that you specifically said during the election campaign. You didn't say I will dissolve the park board. Your campaign platform, which I have right here in front of me, says you would improve the park board by undertaking a full audit. Yeah, and so I'll be very clear as well, um, and, and I'll send you a copy of it. On May the 25th, I, I said it uh, quite a few times, but uh, on May the 25th, 2022, I did an interview with uh, Lisa Thibault, who was at CTV at the time, and I explicitly said that we were going to try to fix the park board. And if we could not do that, then we would go to, uh, we would make changes and we would go to uh, the province to make those changes. And so I was very clear back then that our intention was to make sure that we have uh, um, incredibly vibrant parks, and we would do uh, anything we could to make that happen. Right. You mentioned going to the province then. So on that note, we, you know, Premier David Eby didn't seem sound like he was in a rush to get to this issue for Vancouver. He talked about it briefly yesterday. So what is the timeline for this? And what is your message to the province on it? Yeah, well, um, I, I know um, the Premier, look, look the, let's talk about the reality. The Premier has a lot of uh, 
uh, issues uh, and big issues on his plate right now. So I fully understand why he would um, say that, you know, it, the park board wouldn't be his number one priority. Um, but l- let me also be very clear. They've been uh, incredibly great uh, partners. And um, I know um, through conversations with uh, the premier's office um, uh, that they care about Vancouver and they want to do what's right um, uh, for Vancouver. And they, they've shown in the past and I know they will continue to do that. So um, when it comes to the time frame, uh, I think the earliest it could happen, it was, uh, the spring session, um, you know, is when they can first present it um, you know, in Victoria. And we're hopeful that, you know, if it was up to me, it, it would have happened a long time ago. Um, but, you know, we have to go through uh, that province or the, that process with the province. Do you, is there any opportunity for the public to have a say here to say, well, wait a minute, we, we're not sure about, you know, exactly how this is going to look. We want to say how we feel. Well, I think, you know, first of all, because we were clear uh, during the election, uh, you know, once again, I, I point to, uh, you know, I, I said it on multiple times, but also uh, in that um, interview, we were clear that we wanted to have vibrant parks and um, we would, you know, try to fix it. And if we couldn't fix it, if it was unfixable, we'd go to the province and we won an overwhelming majority. Uh, and mayor and council and uh, we're we're basically you know the public had their say back then they elected us based on what we said and so um, we're basically fulfilling um, the promise that we uh, made to the public. To be fair though do you think one interview where you said it you know explicitly reached everybody who might want to have a say in this? Well, I said it multiple times. I can only point to that one uh, interview because they actually wrote it uh, down uh, and they they published it. But it, it was said multiple times. We were clear during the election that that's exactly what we're going to do. All right. Well, Mayor Sim, thank you for your time this morning. Great. Thank you very much. That's Ken Sim, the mayor of Vancouver, talking about the plan to abolish the park board in Vancouver moving ahead, as you heard there. Uh, and I know the public, you know, they want to talk about this. They have they have feelings. They have thoughts on this. You have, too. I've gotten emails this morning from people saying, yes, they want to see this happen. But is this the process? Do you have confidence in the process of doing this? You're talking about getting rid of the only elected park board in the country. Regardless of how you feel about what they have done or haven't done, that's not something you can just create again. Right. If you decide that, oh, maybe we liked it better the other way. So do we not, you know, deserve a say? And should we be talking to the public about this? Do a little consultation, a couple of public hearings on this. We've had public hearings on everything else. This is Mornings with Simi. There is evidence that the provincial government is doing the old game of double counting. BC United Opposition got its hands on some information under access to information, which suggests that in their first, gee, we're in the eighth year of NDP government, they only added about 250 treatment beds. All right, that's Vaughn Palmer there from the Vancouver Sun. We were talking to him earlier this morning about this announcement that came from the province yesterday about an expansion of addiction treatment and recovery services. Now, that is something everybody has been asking for saying if we really want to put a dent in our opioid overdose crisis numbers, we need to offer more options to people. So obviously this announcement was important, but does it actually mean net new beds? Well, that's what we wanted to talk about. Like what is new here and how much of a difference is this actually going to make? So that's why we're very glad that Jennifer Whiteside is with us now, BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Now, can we please break down this announcement here? So what what is happening for people who need help? Yeah. So with this announcement, Simi, I mean, as you, you know, as you said in your in your in your introduction, we we understand how critical it is that we 
that we improve access for British Columbians to the kind of care and support that they need right through the continuum of addressing their addiction challenge. That's through detox beds, through, uh, through withdrawal management and, and on to treatment, and then, of course, into, into aftercare as well. And we have been working with the Canadian Mental Health Association uh, over the last uh, a couple of years to help us um, work with community providers um, to sort of structure a program that provides uh, low barrier access uh, to British Columbians. So in, uh, in 2022, we, uh, we asked uh, the, the CMHA to work with us and we funded 105 uh, beds and they worked with community partners to stand up those beds, to make those beds uh, available through our public system. So there's a publicly funded beds now that British Columbians can access free of, uh, free of charge. We've added to that program. Uh, we uh, announced yesterday 180 uh, beds uh, will, uh, will be available. We have 97 of those beds uh, in operation now, and the rest are coming online between, uh, between now and the summer. Okay, but are those actually net new beds? Because I know some of them were private beds that are kind of transitioning to public space, right? Yeah, that, that's right. You may recall that we had a, a completely privatized and deregulated uh, system of uh, supportive recovery uh, throughout most of the 2000s. Um, the regulations that had existed in, uh, in the late 90s uh, for the supportive recovery sec- sector were eliminated uh, by the then Liberal government in the early 2000s. And so, you know, we've been working since we formed government in 2017 to bring uh, to sort of bring bring some more structure back to that uh, back to that that sector. We we brought in increases in the in the funding for the supportive recovery sector in 2019. We brought in standards uh, in the contracting, the procurement that health authorities do with our with our community community uh, partners, and we're continuing that uh, that that work today. So the the community partners that we're working with, the 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 organizations that provide um, that provide these services, uh, uh, some of these beds are beds that they that were only available to uh, through the purely private pay uh, system, and we're taking those beds now and bringing them into uh, to the to the public system and funding those publicly. And in some cases, we've been providing uh, we're providing uh, 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 funds to these organizations to build net new beds, additional beds, so add-on beds in, in space that they, uh, in, in physical space that, that they already have. Okay, so these beds existed before, but people would have had to pay for them. Now they're part of the healthcare system. That's right. That's right. Okay, so what is the plan then to actually like increase the number of available beds, like absolutely new beds on the list? Yeah, so we have about, uh, you know, more than 90 net new, like brand new beds that did not exist in any system uh, before this, this, uh, before this investment this year. So those will come on, come online uh, by the by the summer. Uh, we've added, uh, you know, 500 uh, beds to the um, to the system over the over the course of the the, the last number of years that, that that we've been in government. We've built brand new beds at um, at St. Paul's uh, Hospital, uh, where we are building out the road to recovery uh, approach, which is a, a seamless approach to uh, to uh, to treating folks with uh, with substance use. Issues where they could they come into the hospital, they have a uh, you know a place in a withdrawal management uh, unit, and then they uh, then they are are transitioned throughout the, the throughout the process to treatment, and then into into aftercare right through that system. We have um, we have uh, those initial beds up and running um, at, uh, at at St. Paul's Hospital, and the uh, the treatment beds uh, will be added on by the by the summertime. Okay, so is, is there a frustration, though, here, Minister Whiteside, that we can't do this quite fast enough for all the people who do need help? Like, is this, when is this going to show us that we're making a dent in our overdose numbers? 
Yeah, I mean, Simi, I, I, I understand that. I mean, we, we all feel an incredible uh, uh, amount of pressure and sense of urgency around responding to a toxic drug crisis that is unrelent, that is just unrelenting, becoming more toxic by the day. Uh, and causing so much uh, devastation across uh, across British Columbia families and and, and communities, uh, but our health authorities are working to not only stand up bed based access to bed based treatment, which is really important for some people who need bed based treatment, but not everybody does. Some people can be supported really well with outpatient treatment, with um, access to um, programs that uh, like methadone programs that can help you know support them and stabilize them uh, in their uh, in in their their uh, their in managing their uh, their their their, their substance use um, disorder. Uh, some people are very uh, can be supported really well with virtual care. We have through our, the First Nations Health Authority. They have made really um, important uh, developments in, um, in in providing care, particularly in rural and remote communities, through uh, through access to virtual programs. So you know we're working on all of those fronts to um, ensure that people can get the care, the kind of care that they need when they need it. So how does someone access this then? Um, so these beds that are uh, that are coordinated through us through uh, through the Canadian Mental Health uh, Association, people can uh, can access them. They can self refer to those uh, to, to those beds, and they can find that information on our um, on our Care uh, Care Starts Here uh, website. Um, or they can um, uh, they can access it through their provider or through the health authority. What's important about these beds through CMHA is that people can self refer. Uh, we are still we're working with health authorities about having you know easier pathways to access some treatment spaces through uh, through health authority referrals but these beds through CMHA people can self-refer um, they can connect directly with the uh, with, with the provider and um, and, and arrange to, uh, to to try to access those, those okay. services what does that mean then so then if they know the building or they can phone up the place and just say I want to come here Yep, they can get them so they can call right away they can say I need I need a, I you know this is my situation. Um, I need access to care, and then they will go through, of course, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, an assessment process um, where we we have a team with uh, with CMHA and with the health authority and with the provider looking at you know triaging what uh, the, the the you know the people who are who are coming in um, and, and triaging who who you know what is their situation and what kind of care do they need and are they appropriate for the kind of care that that provider um, is is offering. Okay, so there is more to come. There is always going to be more to come, Sammy. There is, um, there, there is, there's work happening every day to scale up more access to support for British Columbians. All right, Minister Whiteside, thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That's Jennifer Whiteside, BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, really breaking it down for us. But this announcement, there was a big announcement yesterday about you know new beds, making sure people have access, if they can, to um, a recovery, a treatment bed to recover from addiction if they need it. But we still have a long way to go uh, to make sure that anybody who walks in and says, I need help or I want to get help, I'm ready to get help, is immediately offered that help. Right? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com.